0: Welcome to Aircrew Interview. I'm Mike and your host, and this is a very special episode as we have an exclusive and extended interview with the brilliant Captain Joe. This is the first podcast and detailed interview Joe has done, and it's great he has chosen Aircrew Interview to share his story so far. This episode, we go into detail about his early beginnings in aviation, his time flying the A320, his current role on the 747, and of course, his brilliant YouTube channel. We were also very rudely interrupted in the middle of the interview from Joe's hotel who decided to do a test fire alarm for 30 minutes, which you will be able to hear us chatting about in this interview. So please enjoy and make sure you head over to our website www.aircreeninterview.tv for more in-depth interviews. Thank you and enjoy. Okay, so Joe, when did you first become interested in aviation?
1: Ah, oh, Mike. When did uh oh, It's a long, long time ago. If I think <laughs> back to it, um, I was uh, want to say sort of thirteen, fourteen years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, a good friend of my parents. He had a, a little biplane, and he invited me to go out for a spin with it. And oh, literally, uh, a minute after takeoff, <laughs> he sort of goes, "Hey Joe, take over control." And the cool thing was that um, I was in the front seat and he was sitting behind me. It was a little uh, Christian yep. Eagle, and um, so I could really see what he was doing. And I was all by myself and, <laughs> in the front of the <laughs> cockpit. And um, no, but it was it was really I want to say you know from the from the joystick. It's kind of it actually it's just like a, a wooden pole <laughs> in the <laughs> in the, the Christian. Eagle. It went from there. Feeling was right into my heart, and it's just it got me all excited, and I just uh, wanted to do more of that. That's how it started. So I wouldn't say sort of the age of fourteen, yeah.
0: Awesome, absolutely. So obviously a lot of our viewers and all of your viewers know you went to airlines. So why did you choose airliners over military?
1: That is a good question. Um, because the military, I think in Germany is, uh, I mean, you can have the option, but the, the assessment is incredibly difficult to get into. Right. And, uh, I know actually a few military pilots and, um, Let's say, sort of, the sad side effect of, uh, of being a military pilot is that they don't really fly as much. especially like, yeah. compared to like uh, the US Air Force, these boys they fly like I don't know, probably two to three hundred hours every year. But the German ones are sort of down to fifty, maybe eighty hours a year, which is not a lot. It's more in the simulator kind of stuff and. Uh, I probably, am, yeah, and then it didn't really sort of strike my, my uh mind to actually become a military pilot because I actually wanted to do more flying, like actual yeah. flying, you know, so yeah, that's why. <laughs> of course, yeah.
0: So you have to talk us through your initial training, like how did it start <laughs> and where did you start? Yeah
1: yeah uh that's it's a funny coincidence as a lot of things are in aviation. Yeah. I shouldn't have actually become a pilot because uh my parents wanted me to become a dentist, and i oh, okay. uh, yeah so I finished my school um, in Germany. And then, uh, you normally sort of do a year of social work. Uh, I was a paramedic for a year and then I kind of had to, you know, choose what I'm going to be do uh, for mm-hmm. the rest of my uh, life. And, um, and then I, by pure chance, I got into university to study dentistry, but at the same day I had the assessment to go to Lufthansa and take, uh, that initial test. Um, oh, wow. but yeah. But I cancelled on the test last minute because, I mean, having, getting this option to to go to university for free in Germany, I mean, it's like a once-in-a-lifetime chance. And my parents were kind of, I'm not going to say forcing me to do it, but they kind of really wanted to do it. And they said, Joe, if you don't like it, then you might as well become a pilot. And... Um, so I, I went off to study two years uh, dentistry, and in the meantime, I was actually sneaking out of <laughs> <at the> university <laughs> to go to a little flying school uh, down in Austria. Uh, well, literally just a little airfield. I think it's seven hundred and fifty feet long, and uh, they had a the little flying school with a little Cessnas and whatnot. And um, yeah, and that's uh, I started getting some lessons there, and uh, and that sort of spiked the whole idea of actually, you know, pursuing my dream of becoming an airline pilot, and. Um, it's uh it's actually since then it's been quite a success story. Uh, because then um uh, my um my instructor actually, you know, he sort of realized okay, there's some talent. You really could do this, you know, as a profession for the rest of your life. And then uh, I quit university <laughs> and uh yeah, not really didn't make my parents very really happy but um and then i went into a flying school in uh, northern germany in dusseldorf and uh, enrolled did all the 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 theory in um in dusseldorf and then but most actually well nearly all of my practical training in vera beach florida at flight safety academy and that by far was one of the ah, that was just that time. I still look back to it and I think it was the best time I've had, um, you know, just flying around Florida. <laughs> and cool. the funniest thing is that yeah, my instructor, he was literally the same age as I, I was. and um, But he had so much fun and I don't know, it was six months of, you know, pure sunshine and uh, flying around the little planes and just having a blast. And then um, when I finished, I came back, it was sort of 2008. I had to take one like sort of major exam in Germany, theory-wise, obviously, and practical. I had to get my license converted from an American to a German one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then once I've had that all, um, I was trying to apply to airlines. And I was, yeah, in bad luck because of the economy it was just so bad at the time that yeah. no one was hiring. Uh, well, <laughs> uh, but me as a guy who has a very sort of you know very optimistic and positive attitude. Um, I had to take uh, just after my last check flight, I had to um, take another check flight to extend my single engine piston land um, license, and uh, I went back to my old flying school in Austria. Um, and so my we did a flight, nothing special, and we went to a place where which is very close to my parents. And um, we did a debriefing in a little like it's called uh, the propeller restaurant, it's a little pub, nothing special. Uh-huh. Right, So we go in there, we discuss everything. And then <laughs> literally a table next to me, there's a guy talking to his colleague saying, oh, man, I don't know how to how are we going to deal with the summer. I desperately need a pilot. You know, who's going to fly the plane? I can't do it all by myself and so forth and so forth. And I hear that. Literally, I mean, a table next to me. And I just went up to him and I said, Mate, uh, I've just finished my flying school, uh, which you've interested, you know, in hiring me. And he said, that's fantastic. And, and, and I think two or three days later, I got my class rating or started my class rating on the Pilatus Porter, um, for skydiving and, uh, he to become a skydiving pilot. So <laughs> I did that. And it, I remember the fact, the first uh, time I actually flew the Pilatus Port, I mean, it's not, let's say, not the most aesthetic airplane to look at,
0: but <laughs> no, flying it's
1: not, is completely <laughs> complete overperform. I mean, it's, it's such a cool plane. But once I, um, because skydiving is, I mean, it's a lot of time, you know, you have to go up as quickly as possible and then down as quickly as possible. So when the, the first time I actually, this, well, falling out of the sky proceeded like <laughs> no sound. I said to myself, "Oh my God, Joe! What have you got yourself into? Why would you do that? you risk your life on it." Uh, but then uh, you know, it's a thing. You, I that was really flying outside of my comfort zone at first. Yeah, but you get used to these things, right? And then uh, yeah, so uh, I was I was very happy to do that. I did that for one year, uh, and I lived at my parents' place because it was so close to to the little airport. And I've gained so much experience, you know, because flying in a straight line, I'm not going to judge, but Anyone can do that, but so starting and you know take landings, that is where you really gain experience and uh, I mean, I did thirty two loads a day on a weekend. it was I did so many touch and goes it was it was so much fun and then the funniest thing is and that's again in aviation, you have to have a little bit of luck. the last day um more or less of that job or more or less of the season. There was a guy sitting in this cramped Pilatus port with ten other guys, and he was like monitoring me throughout the entire day. And he was one of those guys where normally a jumper he jumps out, he lands, and then he has to pack his chute again. And so he skips maybe two or three flights in between, and then he gets back on again. But this guy was on every flight, so I knew he had girls who were packing his parachute. Uh-huh. So I knew the guy was kind of sort of you know he had some money, and so and so, <laughs> and so at the end of the evening, a barbecue. Uh, he he approaches me and says, "Hey Joe, um, what are you going to do over the winter time?" So I had an option actually to go to Dubai and fly for uh, Skydive Dubai. Okay. Um, I declined that. I, I went there for an interview. It was all good and fun, but um, he then actually said, "I would." Uh, he's a, a chief pilot of a little executive company in Dusseldorf, where I actually was at flight school. If I would be interested in flying a King Air. And I said, oh, wow. mate, you do not have to ask me ties. I'm signing up. <laughs> I'm and <mad>. that's what <laughs> I did. And then a week later, literally a week later, I had uh, my next job and I was in, sitting in the typewriting course for the, for the King Air. And, uh, and then I did some King Air flying, you know, the ex- especially the executive aviation is, it's very unique. And, you know, you have to do a lot of all the stuff you've learned in flight school, like flight planning and all the, you know, the weather charts, reading weather mm-hmm. charts and all that stuff. Airlines kind of do that for you, but in executive flying, you literally have to do it all by yourself. And we didn't have a flight attendant. So I was vacuum cleaning the airplane when we landed and, you know, the passengers got out. That was my job. I was washing planes no for a living. For but it was great. I mean, to gain experience, it was absolutely fantastic because coming from the skydiving, it was more sort of VFR ATC. So you didn't really sort of, you know, request clearances and that kind of thing. But with the executive, it was, all I've learned at flight school sort of kind of came to play in the executive uh, area, and then she's, uh, well, she's not flying anymore now she's got uh, a kid. But um, she was with Air Berlin, and she sort of called me up one day and said, "Joe, you are applying today at Air Berlin. I want you to send me all your details, and we'll you know put your CV on top, and you, you know we'll see, we'll try to get you in." I said, "Fantastic, that's what I did." So I sent my papers to, to Air Berlin. I'm not gonna lie. A week later, they replied, said, "Joe, uh, can you come around um, for an assessment next month?" I said, "Fantastic." And then um, the assessment definitely was challenging. Uh, It's very, it's comparable to the DLR test, um, like with Lufthansa. But you know, if you prepare well enough, and there are ways of preparing for these kind of things, and that's what I did. And um, as an advice for any listener here who is a flight student. I had actually had a chat with a psychologist before going into these interviews, and uh, I kind of had a fear, you know, that, you know, is he's, he's going to ask me this weird thing, and then he, is he going to figure out something which is wrong about me or whatever? And the guy literally gave me the key advice to these assessments is when when facing a psychologist, be honest. Just, you know, speak out the truth. If you start lying, and They're they ask you a up, question, and you, they immediately realize oh they'll ask you the same questions a couple of minutes later and then you might sort of you know you said a couple of minutes later and then you they realize ah okay he's been lying like half an hour ago so you know it's it's sometimes it's really harsh to be very truthful in those things you know i mean sometimes they ask you really they ask you questions where you don't want to answer truthful like if you're a well-organized person <laughs> and you sometimes you're not you're sloppy you know? that's just how you are and uh but if you yeah if you if you're honest and you tell them yeah i'm not like a perfectionist but you know i'm trying to be uh-huh. then you know that's an honest answer and then so more or less that's what it got then i got through that and uh i started my uh my first job in an airline career and i was very very fortunate because if i look back i'm very glad that I've had this, you know, gained experience with the Porter, gained experience on the King Air, and got a piece of every kind of aviation industry there's out there. And uh, a lot of my colleagues from flight school didn't get a job, and they were not doing anything for two years. Uh, you know, if you work at, I'm not going to say McDonald's or whatever, but if if you don't yeah. use your time wisely, and don't do anything aviation related. Um, airlines will realize that or see that on your CV and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, you know, you might as well be a ramp agent that is aviation related enough. And they will pick up on that and say, that's great. So, so I'm happy I've done that. And they, uh, in the final interview, they realized that I was, you know, putting a lot of effort into, you know, maintaining a job and being in the industry. And um, yeah, so uh, I was happy. It all somehow karma <laughs> paid back on that day when I got and I got the job with Air Berlin, yeah. Yeah, so that's how I got into the airline industry, kind of, yeah.
0: Yeah, so before we move <laughs> into your initial training, uh, so was it yes. your best friend, if you your best friend didn't push you in that direction, would you have went airliners, or would you have stuck to what uh, you were currently uh, doing?
1: But the thing is that this best friend of mine, we were actually at flight school together, so we both had, I mean, the whole flight school was kind of sort of laid out to become an airline pilot. None of them was sitting right. there to say, okay, I'm going to become a seaplane pilot or something else. Yeah. I mean, that. It's just I think sort of they brainstorm you that much, and especially all the, the you know the courses you take are so ATPL air transport pilot license oriented that they don't really give you another option, or you don't really see the other options you know yeah. that you could be. Uh, I know I know a good friend of mine is a seaplane pilot, and he's doing a, He's it's a fantastic job, but um, uh, she well. Yeah, she not not that she forced me into it, or um, I mean, we just had the same goal, and uh, mm-hmm. and I'm very I'm very very happy that she gave me that call that day, and uh, that everything you know paid out in the end. And and to be fair, you know, in aviation, sometimes a bit of a as they call it, vitamin B does help. Knowing someone here and there. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that she, you know, guaranteed me the job. I still had to go through all the assessments like everyone else had to do, but she was the because it was an internal message at first saying that we are looking for pilots, I kind of had a bit of a head start than anyone else because I sent in the CV before they were actually hiring um, people from the outside. So,
0: yeah, but that's just sometimes you have to have a bit of luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I yeah. think that's uh, true in any case, in, the, in any world, Yeah, life. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, so let's talk about, I'm guessing it's your first love, the A320. Can you talk about oh, your initial yeah. training and was it yeah. daunting coming from, you know, lighter extra? <laughs>
1: Absolutely. The funniest thing was when I got the when I got the job with Airbus, they asked me if I wanted to go on the 737 or, or the 8020. I mean, that itself is, I mean, no airline does that. They're the actual yes. option that, that you have to choose from. But so I said, oh, I definitely have to go to 737 because the funny thing is I was so brainwashed <laughs> by an instructor who said, you know, why would you ever want to fly an Airbus? Because if, uh, because it, because of the electronic checklist, he said, "Why would I want to? Uh, why should I trust a plane that is has a failure and then gives me a checklist to do so with uh, an electronic checklist? It doesn't make any sense." He is yeah. so stuck. He said, "Paper checklist, that's the and only." And so I, I was completely – And also this whole fly-by-wire stuff. And I thought, like, "Oh my god!" Nevertheless, <laughs> uh, Evelyn then said, "I said 737, and I was and and I did the MCC, that what's it called, the the multi-cockpit." Cruel. Oh, God. I've forgotten the name for it. So it's like this, um, CRM training I did on the 737 simulator. Uh And so I was, I was kind of fixed to, to Boeing. Nevertheless, Evelyn calls and says, oh, Joe, no, 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 we need more pilots on the AC-20. And I said, oh, my God, no. <laughs> I was so frustrated. And I said, oh, it's going to be the worst ever. But uh, and then I read into it. And then when the, when the, the training started on, on the, the typewriting, and we did most of our typewriting in Switzerland with Swiss aviation training. Okay. Uh, yeah, they sort of outsourced, you know, some of the yeah. training into Switzerland. It was fantastic. Fantastic. Oh, my word. At at first, I was very skeptical, I, I admit, because it is, I have to admit, it is a very complex plane. It is very electronic. There's a lot of things, you know, which are a bit sort of, you know, well. And uh, I'll not, not get into that so much. But nevertheless, I mean, it was funny when we, when we were there um, and in, we had, we had shared flats with other pilots and uh, who gone through 737 training. And I remember when we <laughs> in the evenings, <laughs> I mean, the, these Boeing pilots just made so much fun of us. Ah, okay. You've, you've been playing on your Atari all day today. Like, you know, there was, <laughs> it was hilarious. And it, you know, kind of, we, we, we couldn't really be backfire with anything. It's not we had against them. So, um, but the training itself was, um, it was really good. And, um, I'm thankful that we've done it in Switzerland because they're really sort of, you know, buy the book and, uh, we really got a good, good training there. And then I remember when we came out of, um, the aviation training there and we had to do our first flight. <laughs> oh my God. I remember we had to go to a place, uh, Rostock in north, northern part of Germany. Oh, was it Rostock? Yeah, I think it was Rostock. Some, like, you know, it's one of these, well, uh, an airport. It's like an ex-military airbase, and um, so we just used that uh, airfield to do some traffic patterns. Mm-hmm. And I remember it was uh, six pilots. I think it was six or no, seven. I think it was seven pilots times five traffic patterns. That was thirty-five oh, touch and go in an A three hundred and twenty, and I thought, I remember the day we got there. It was so funny. I thought, okay, Air Berlin is like going to plan and give us like the oldest, crappiest plane they have, you know. Yeah. But they they just took any plane, which was you know scheduled. We had a brand new A three hundred and twenty. really? And we were taking around. I mean, you know, if you do your first landings, and especially uh, the captain has no real control because uh-huh. he can't really see the inputs because it's you know the side stick doesn't give four feedback to the captain's uh, side stick so i mean i admit okay the first one was good i know remember the first one landing was good but a a few of those five (laughs) i mean (laughs) i really put it down (laughs) but it is fun i mean you know but you know it's a learning curve you have to learn and get you gain experience and um yeah then i went through the supervision phase uh, also really cool was that uh, some of my colleagues I I think I was the only one yeah um most of my colleagues went to Air Berlin and did the supervision during, in with Air Berlin and I funny enough uh did it with LTU um which was a a company previous of Air Berlin and then uh, Air Berlin actually bought um LTU and I was but the, the whole supervision training was with these really really experienced LTU pilots which were I mean the knowledge they have passed on to me was just oh, mind blowing you know they were so incredibly helpful and you know I was a total newbie. I had no idea what I was doing i mean yeah. because at that point, the plane is literally flying you because it's such an over- it 's an information overload and you can 't really sort of you have to process everything and i the thing i did i remember which helped me a lot was um I did a lot of like voice recordings to myself. I've recorded stuff. I still, actually sometimes I still listen to them, and they're like ten <laughs> years old. Now. And I've, I've recorded things I've learned just to process them a little better and to get a better understanding for many things. And that's one of those uh, an advice I got from one of these captains, and I'm I'm thankful for it. It was it was so cool. And um, yeah, and then in the end, uh, everything worked out fine. And I was based in um, so my supervision training was in uh, Düsseldorf. And that was like three months. And then I uh, was based in Stuttgart, which was uh, yeah, it's a normal little airport, um, flying to Mallorca, I don't know, 52 times a year. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then, you know, the first year, the first year is really where it counts, where you have to just, you know, I was taking any flight they gave to me. I would never, I think need, I haven't had a one sick day in my first year because I was, I was having so much fun. And um yeah. This, that's that's my uh, beginning of the airline career with Evelyn. <laughs>
0: awesome. Yep. So just talking yeah. about a bit more uh, about the A320, what was a cockpit yeah. like? Was it all glass cockpit or was the analog gauges in there? Yeah, we
1: had there? a few of them really, really old ones, which had a few analog instruments, but in general, it's all glass cockpit. I mean, yeah. analog standby instruments, that's what we've had. But uh, no, in general, it was, it was all glass cockpit. And uh, I mean... <laughs> Comparing to the plane I fly now, the Airbus AC twenty is I think one of the most spacious cockpit out there. And it's incredible. It's I mean it's it's a plane it's a plane to get really old on. I mean, for like <laughs> senior pilot it's great. Because you have so much space. I mean that that table. I mean I, I at first I thought my when am I ever gonna use this table? What's it good for anyways? I mean now I really I have to admit I really miss it because that table is so convenient for you know doing fuel checks or Anything like having your meal on that table is just great. <laughs>
0: and, and no, is that exclusive if, to Airbus, or or do Boeings now do that? Oh no 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 no! No, no. I think
1: Boeing. I think I've actually seen some. There was a in type rating for the seven four. I think I saw a little in the in the computer based training. They had a little video where they said. Um, the yoke uh, an airplane is made for flying uh, sorry a cockpit is laid out for flying and not to have a food and uh, to have your meals in it it was something like it was after, i mean it was such like a unintended you know it's against against airbus now but in in general uh, airbus is very it's it's reliable all right i mean i've never had any serious malfunction with it but there's a few things sometimes you do have i don't know it showed on the ecam. it shows some kind of failure on ground uh-huh. and sometimes you couldn't get rid of it you know you, did, you pulled circuit breakers you did this and that and you called maintenance and you know you just couldn't get rid of it and then at one point the guy <laughs> from maintenance just said all "Right, shut it all down literally just turn the whole play, airplane off and just more or less restart it like you would do like you would restart a computer oh, really? and then and the failure just it was gone you know and i thought oh my god that was i think it didn't really i mean reliability okay but uh, apparently that's, that's one of the things you cannot do with the uh, the 747 or generally with, with Boeing you can turn it off and you know off and on again and the failure won't have disappeared but on the Airbus that's quite sort of a common thing to do
0: <laughs> yeah, can imagine. yeah and we will be talking yeah. about the 747 a bit later on but, yeah. uh, can you tell us what destinations and routes you used to fly on the A320
1: oh absolutely I mean anything within Europe uh yeah. I mean, I think I, I think I've counted it at one point and uh, I did in, in the eight years of flying with Air Berlin. I think I've seen up to 60 destinations. Okay. Uh, um, yeah, I, the ones I really, really preferred flying to was definitely the one, the, the, the Greece Islands going to Greece was, um, yeah. you know, I like the airfield. I mean, Airbus is very, very automated and there's a lot of, it's so much, you know, get all the, the helps, all the uh, bits and bobs which really help you make it flying incredibly easy. But it's not necessarily a plane to, to uh, build to do a lot of manual flying. You can. I'm not saying you can't, but um, it was cool to sort of see, you know, fly visual approaches with the A320, which just I mean, that's what I love, and uh, that's what I went to work for. I just wanted to do visual approaches, because sure. that sort of puts you into a little Cessna, and you just do it with uh, 210 passengers behind you. <laughs> I thought that <it> was fantastic. <laughs> the, Greek, uh, the Greek islands, you had because some of them, they had first of all, they can't afford an ILS or I don't know a VOR approach, so they had some kind of NDB or whatever to pinpoint that you could actually get to the airport, and then you did your you know visual pattern and then sort of self-created your own approach, and uh, that was really cool and I really liked that. And and then obviously the the ones which were more challenging but also a lot of fun um, were the Canary Islands. I mean, these oh. there's no doubt about it. Any any air, I, island you fly to. Any runway there is completely built in the wrong direction because there's not a single one in the Canary which hasn't got crosswind. They all have crosswinds. So you fly in there and it's a, a minimum of 50 to 60 degrees crosswind and uh, 20 knots and upwards. You know? and yeah. sometimes you actually reach the limits so, yeah, because you have crosswind limitations. And but uh, that's but I've that's those are the approaches I I go to work for because you know flying and all this. With calm winds, it's, I'm not going to say boring, but it's you know there's never a real challenge in it. And when you fly, you get shaken back and forth on these crosswind approaches, especially on Canary Islands. That was so cool, and I could do that all day long. And um, yeah, so that's that's the those are the days I really loved at work. Yeah.
0: So yeah. how do I feel about, uh, you know, coming from uh, flying light airplanes to having, like you say, like a, a hundred odd people in the back and also yeah. a crew on? How how did you take that?
1: <laughs> it's funny. Um, I think, you know, when you start off in the little Cessna, the first 10, oh, maybe 30 to 40 hours is where you really... <laughs> Uh, you need a lot of experience, and you kind of process what you've learned. And it's the same with the Airbus. Then, I mean, the plane is just a bit bigger, but in the end, the physics haven't changed. It's still an airplane. And, you know, <laughs> um, but in terms of the passengers, funny enough, I never really thought a lot about my passengers because I more. Uh, Thought about the plane itself. I didn't want to hurt or damage the plane in any ways Um, And I it sounds a bit um, strange when I say that but I kind of Build up a little relationship with the plane every time I take off and land with it because it is also my life, which, you know, I'm I am the plane my life depends on the on on that plane. I mean, I'm taking it up there, so I might as well have to bring it down and make it as safe as possible. And so I kinda blended out that I had two hundred odd passengers uh, sitting yeah. behind me. And I had in, in terms of that I actually had a lot of fun with passengers because we did all sorts of cool stuff. I remember um one of the flights where, where we were delayed for hours and hours because, of, I don't know, French airspace was on strike or whatever. And then, you know, we... we invited passengers we knew we were going to fly we we're going to take off in the next three hours at one point and then we just made an announcement via the PA if anyone is interested to come by and have a look at the cockpit you know we'll, we'll give you a bit of a tour and people just loved doing that And it was so cool to awesome. you know motivate them a little bit show them what we're doing and you know sort of interacting with these people and that's i think that's the only point i really realized that i have passengers but besides <laughs> that I mean, it was me the captain and the oh, Oh, the cats and me and the plane. And uh, no, I didn't really think of much. But, but in terms of um, little planes and small, uh, little Cessnas compared to Airbus, in the end, you know, if you apply power, it will go up. If you decrease power, it will descend. It is no big difference. And um,
0: yeah. So, <laughs> so how did the A320 handle? Did it feel heavy on the um, stick? The side stick doesn't really give you a lot of feedback.
1: <laughs> so I like to say sometimes the less is uh, more on the Airbus. You know, if you <laughs> yeah. fly down by less and you get shaken back and forth and, you know, the plane somehow always finds back to its um, flight path. It is a flight path guided plane and it's sort of difficult to explain. But nevertheless, um, in terms of handling, I remember sometimes... Uh, reaching the limit of the plane in terms of like crosswind. Sometimes, let's say you had a crosswind coming from the right, you use the side stick to counteract. You put in some right aileron uh, to sort of balance the plane out to have level wings. And sometimes, I remember the wind was so strong that I was at max deflection going all to the right, and the plane still kept tilting to the left. And that it's it's not. I'm not going to say a bad. Playing to flying crossman it's maybe Boeing in that terms is a little bit better, yeah. um, but uh, and sometimes, you know, it's it's sort of, you, you don't get a lot of response from the plane what you're doing. That in terms of Boeing is right. it's much better, it's much better because you really have a feel of what you're doing. And and the biggest difference I think is the trim that you can't, you you don't really know what it's doing. Uh-huh. So and the same is with the auto You have the auto uh, sorry, the auto thrust. Oh, I've got getting mixed up already. <laughs> the <auto> thrust <laughs> is um, you don't see any movement of you know if it applies power if it decreases power it's always at the same spot. And as a pilot, you kind of need that feedback of the plane, right. what yeah. it's doing. And, and that was something. I mean, I got used to it, and you got la- you actually got really lazy because you didn't really think about it that much anymore. But mm-hmm. then converting over to the Boeing, it is. Oh, God, people are going to hate me for that I feel a little more as a pilot now because I have more interaction with the plane and it is more yeah. responsive and, and I get this false feedback which I well appreciate <laughs> <laughs> and, but in general I, I, um, I have nothing against Airbus and I'm not going to say it's either one of them is better I, but I really, really loved flying the A320. it is a fantastic plane, I and mean, it was way, way ahead than Boeing uh, when it was first brought out in 1982, I think it was. Um, and, 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 and and still today, and, and until today, it is still really advanced. I mean, obviously, other planes are now a bit more modern, but the A320, if you, you don't change anything with it, it'll, it'll last for the next 40 years at least because it's the system they put in place. It's incredibly reliable. It's so easy to understand, and, you know, it will just keep on going. So a
0: real workhorse, isn't it? Totally,
1: totally. I'm not surprised why so many airlines use it. I mean, it is. I mean, okay, the 737 is the one which is sold a little more often, but, Uh but, uh, you know, some of the 737s are so old. Because they're all analog, you can't use them as much as well. Maybe they're just outdated. But if you you can fly an Airbus A320 from the 1980s until today. I mean, there's limits to everything, but still, it it hasn't changed. It still yeah, looks exactly the same from the interior, and that's just what I think about about Airbus. That the very intuitive thinking of these engineers in the 80s is still. Adaptable still used until today, and that to me makes Airbus so
0: special. So, how long did you spend on the A320? And can you tell us where you went after this? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, the A320,
1: I started with Air Berlin in 2010, uh, and I did my last flight on the A320 on the 26th. Seventh, I think, or 20, no, 21st of October, two thousand eighteen. So yeah, eight years, and uh, I didn't, I don't, I don't regret any day. Uh, I've been working for Evelyn. I had the time of my life with that company. We had so much fun. I mean, we've you know been all to these funny places. Mallorca was more or less our like our second home. Uh, <laughs> we had so incredible nice layovers. Um, and I've gained really, I've met incredible people there. I've gained so much experience. Uh, we had so much fun with the flight descendants. Okay, that sounds a bit odd, but no, we just really had a good connection with all these people. And uh, it was an incredible team effort, a- everything we've done. Especially, I remember the last day when, when the, the company actually shut down, it was just so emotional. I mean, we were sitting there at the airport, the last flight going from Munich to, to Berlin. And everyone was there and everyone was crying their hearts out, you know, and then when the plane last took off and but then we like we celebrated in old school Air Berlin style. We were uh, flooring it out the crew briefing area where we had that party in Munich. (laughs) we completely trashed it we trashed it but it was so cool and and I still have a few friends there um, and I'm so happy to hear that most of them have you know got a job after that and that to me is also really important that these colleagues of mine you know continue working as pilots and also the flight attendants and uh, yeah it's good to see where their careers have uh, you know headed and uh, yeah and I myself consider myself as very very lucky um, to have you know, got the job on, on the plane I always wanted to fly, the 747. And, uh, um, it is, yeah, it's been a bit of a success, a success story, except for those five months I was unemployed. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> But no now now it's it's even better than what I've had before yeah
0: <laughs> yeah absolutely I think you're a very lucky man to fire yeah, yeah. The, the queen of the yeah. sky so let's talk a bit about <laughs> the 747 um, yeah. can you talk about your initial training like was it different yeah. like coming from the airbus uh,
1: absolutely I remember when um, okay that when I had when I w- had to prepare for the assessment I didn't want anything to go wrong at the assessment so i prepared a lot in advance i took um four hours in the 747 sim uh in frankfurt to really prepare because i was so worried that i've you know, might have forgotten how to trim because it's been it's been eight years since I've flown a plane with a manual trim. And, you know, I mean obviously the character is a bit different. She's a bit much heavier than everything else I've flown so far. And uh and that training was incredible. I remember the guy who who um who was doing the training in the simulator just to get some experience for the screening. He was a seven five seven pilot and he just said, Joe there's no big difference between the seven five and seven four. It just has a few engines more, but but in general, he gave me such cool advice, like pitch and power settings and all that kind of stuff, and it was so helpful. Which then I put into into the screening when I was a cargo looks for the screening. And okay, I'm not gonna. Sounds a bit arrogant, but I completely nailed that assessment because awesome. my chief, the, actually funny enough, the chief pilot was the guy who um, <laughs> uh, did, the, did uh, the screening and his deputy sitting behind me. And I had so much fun. And I'm, I'm sure not many people can say that they have fun during a very, very stressful time. You know, I mean, you have yeah. a window of 45 minutes to prove Okay, I am the guy you want to hire. I can really fly this plane. Mm-hmm. And that's what, they, that's what happened, you know. And then it was just a really cool experience. And I think back to this, you know, s- smiling, actually. Okay. And then, uh, yeah, the initial training on the 747, um, yeah, complete, um, you know, fire hose to the mouth and full on such an overload of in information. It was complete. Uh, oh, It was Everything was different to to what I've learned from the the A320. Uh The good thing is about Boeing, which I immediately realized the books in terms of manuals. I mean, you have countless manuals. They were much better organized than the ones in Airbus. Sorry, Airbus, you have to up your game when it comes to that. But no, I had an incredible TKI uh, theoretical knowledge instructor. She was, I mean, you know, she knows the plane in and out. She was such a cool cool lady. And she's actually just getting her upgrades so i can't wait to fly with her um, no but uh again the the training we were very lucky we we're a tiny little course we were only four of us um the courses uh, behind and uh, ahead of us were like 16 uh, pilots so we we're very lucky to be such a tiny course and the cool thing is a lot of our instructors had um like uh, where I don't want to check. So they had to, you know, there was always another instructor in the room, um, checking if the other instructor was doing a right, g- a good job. The same was in the sim. Sometimes we sat in the sim with three other instructors. Like one was doing the actual training. There was a guy being checked. The other been checking the others. It was, cra- it was absolutely crazy. And, but we got so much input from these pilots and there was so much. I mean so many eyes <laughs> what monitoring was what we were doing, but it was just everyone was trying to be incredibly helpful and um and it's been a very, very steep learning curve from from the day from day one more or less and uh and it was great i mean it's it's i am i love you know getting into new books and reading into stuff and and some you you do i mean you know, Boeing is not so much different. I mean, the fuel system is more or less the same that it is on on, on the Airbus uh, or, you know, Things that, there's a few things engineers can't differ from or can't change, like uh, when they build an airplane. So they're incredibly redundant and all that kind of stuff. And so you, I could see a few things which are relatable to, to Airbus. And it helped a lot that, especially with this old YouTube stuff and all the videos I've done, a lot of that came to play because I, I knew the systems fairly well and I could just adapt that to the 747. And yeah, is, is the training was cool. And then, Obviously, when you're done with your final, I think what's it called the, the uh, release to, super, I don't remember. It's it's a check flight you have to take in the simulator, which right. releases you to go out on the actual plane. <laughs> and then <laughs> run, <laughs> and I did my first, oh my word, I was I was oh god, <laughs> was so incredibly <laughs> I I took a dash eight, right? We ha- I had only minimum training on the seven four seven dash eight in the sim, uh, because you do most of the training on the four hundred. And I got onto the Dash Eight, and this instructor—he was such a nice guy—and and, uh, and uh, we were in a large group. It was from um, from Luxembourg to LA. I mean, lucky me, flying to LA—the first flight—it was absolutely yeah. fantastic. But uh, I remember uh when we took off. I mean, <laughs> there's a there's a little vent you have in the in the jumbo, which sort of you know uh, you can have it sort of facing in your face that so you get some cool air. Right. I put that vent. Onto the yoke. I had so sweaty hands. I was so incredibly <laughs> nervous, and that bed was kind of drying the sweat on the yoke. It was absolutely hilarious. So I took off, and I remember, um, you know, I was expecting like a lot of rustling noises going on, and and nothing. It was so quiet, and especially the Dash Eight. It's actually you can't hear the turbines or the engines as much as you can on the Four Hundred. Nevertheless, we t- we take off, and you uh, and I remember that so vividly. Is that uh, the plane rotates, and you hear that little click. Like it's, and, and I realise in that moment the the auto brake system disengages, goes to disarm, and it, tur- well, it turns off the auto brake system. And it's a little mechanical switch, and it just goes click as soon as the landing gear. Uh, as soon as the struts leave the ground and uh, it sort of disconnects and it was so funny that i ex- I was expecting all sorts of weird noises and sounds going off okay. and it wasn't it was so, it was dead silent in the cockpit and then just click and then okay let 's head to l a it was oh it was so cool and then and then the That's flight awesome. itself i mean ah. I could speak hours about that (laughs) flight. I mean, uh, my instructor, you know, he gave me a chance. That, to me, is very, very important, especially if anyone of the listeners is is an instructor. Give your student the chance to enjoy his first flight because, to me, that was a life-changing thing. I mean, flying the 747 the first time is you don't want to – I mean, your head's all all over this place, you know. You're thinking about so many things, and you don't want to be – I'm not going to say interrupt it, but you don't want to get, you know, tons of questions on your first flight about systems and all that kind of stuff. Because you, you have to let your student, you know, have some fun and enjoy his first flight. Because it's the thing you yeah. I will always look back to. And if you would have asked me tons of questions, it probably would have ruined my flight. But it didn't. And and so uh, we just had an amazing time. The layover, I think it was a four-day layover in LA. I mean, what oh, really? more can I ask?
0: I mean, you so we spent four out.
1: days at the start. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, we went to in and out Burgers, saw the planes coming in, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And, oh, uh, yeah, it was it was really cool. Yeah, I really loved it. Yeah, yeah I, think I
0: think I uh, followed you on Instagram where I was, like, watching your story and it just looked absolutely brilliant and I'm sure a proud moment for yourself. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Brilliant. Um, so uh, why did you decide to go cargo rather than passenger? It's a... Uh... <laughs> That's a good question um let okay i can i can let you into
1: a bit of a story there i had i admit that i um i applied to numerous airlines right i mean that's just what you did um company shut down and i kind of had to get a new job and the one of the one airline which was fairly high up on the list i can't mention its name but um any all of my colleagues went to that airline i mean same base same airplane let's say, let's be honest. Uh, no much change in the comfort zone, right? I would have stayed where I would have been and everything would have been fine. Um, now coming back later to this whole YouTube stuff, it would, it was for a passenger, uh, airline, obviously. Um, I was in the interview, went fantastically well. All my colleagues passed before me, all my colleagues passed after, uh, me and, uh, yeah, I, strangely enough, was the only guy to not get that job. And, uh, I figured out in the aftermath what really happened. the guy hated me for what I was doing on YouTube and so on and so okay. far uh, you know I'm not going to blame him, but um the funny thing is that the company I work for now they were actually really happy about that I did this car this uh, captain Joseph they loved it and it's not I'm not saying that there was a reason why they hired me i mean I had to, again had to go through the assessment like everyone else, and uh I had to prove that i'm you know. You know, good enough to, to fly for this uh, airline, um, and I, uh, I don't know. It's I think I don't. I'm not going to say I don't care about passengers. It's more <laughs> I wanted to fly. You know, and if it's if it's flying, I don't know how many passengers can you fit in the four, in a seven four seven something like four hundred or whatever.
0: Um,
1: yeah, sure. I I don't. I am I am a pilot by heart. I do it because I love it for the sake of flying and if it's if i take horses or passengers i don't care because uh it's i i'm a very sort of emotional is a wrong word i'm not an emotional pilot i'm i I like the feel of it you know i do it because i like the feeling of taking off and landing and uh so i don't really matter what i take around and um so cargo to me actually now I think I don't want to fly passengers anymore. It's just so much. (laughs) No hassle for you. (laughs) I mean, mean, you didn't really have that much hassle with the passengers in the first place when I was with Berlin. I mean, I'm very thankful for all the flight attendants who've been protecting us pilots from, you know, complaining passengers. But um, nowadays with with cargo and the entire operation, it's just so easygoing. It's, it's just, you know, there's no stress. There's no, you know, oh, we have to be, I mean, you do have to be on time, obviously, at one point, but, but it's not like, you know, every second counts. And as soon as you don't take off in the next five minutes, you've got complaining passengers banging at your cockpit door. It's, it's not like that. And cargo operation is very, um, unique. And it's, uh, uh, well, it's demanding at the same time. It's different Uh in terms of scheduling. And, and, you know, we fly, a lot of people say we fly primarily through the night. I don't really, I don't think that way. Um, yes, maybe I have a little bit more night flights than I had in the past. But in general, the operation is similar, but it is just, much, as a, from a pilot's perspective, it's so much more relaxed. <laughs> so
0: much more relaxed. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. is, is there a difference uh, for briefing like a flight or is it like simpler, more difficult? Yeah. How does that work? Yeah. No, no, no.
1: In terms of briefing-wise, what we do in the briefing area at the company is com- it's exactly the same uh, okay. as we did with passengers. It's um, obviously without flight attendants, you know, so, I mean, the flight attendants briefing was always very short. You kind of told them, OK, we're expecting some turbulence here and there. You might want to consider, you know, filling the service to another time when we're uh, part of the flight. Um But obviously that is not there anymore. But uh, uh, <laughs> briefing-wise, it is... Exactly the same. You go through the no times the notice to airmen. You go through, uh, the met, met charts, the, uh, the weather charts. Um, you look for alternates. You'd go en route alternates. You do the exact same thing as you do with the, as a passenger pilot, but, um, interesting enough when you get on board there's a bit of a change because you speak a lot to the loadmaster, so the guy who actually is in charge of loading the plane and you have to thoroughly go through the uh, list of cargo you are transporting because you kind of want to review if you have any dangerous goods on board you then want to do a main deck check go actually go into the cargo compartment and really have a look at all these dangerous goods if they i don't know damaged in any way or strapped securely and all that kind of thing. Um, Just to be aware, you have to kind of be aware of what you transport and some of the cargo we fly. Holy cow. I mean, it's just... You would never even think that they would put that on a plane. It's just incredible. Can you share and, some uh,
0: things you've actually carried that might be interesting for us? <laughs> well, the one, the one, the coolest definitely, which is coming up very
1: soon. I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I can say that is, I think it's been in the media already. Is that Carglux is transporting two beluga whales no from way. China, to Iceland? I mean, just wow. picture that. Putting a whale on a plane. I mean, it's not just going to be lying around and just <laughs> strapped it down to, the car, to a pallet. Yeah. Obviously, it has to have a tank with. Well, it's not going to swim. <laughs> I mean, no. it's just incredible. you know. So these kind of things are... Okay, we have transported race cars. I did uh, the Formula 1 charter once from Sao Paulo to... Uh, where did we fly to? Uh, uh, Lagos, Nigeria, and then fuel stop in Nigeria, and then we went over to Abu Dhabi to take the cars awesome. to, the, to the Formula 1. I mean... Okay, I actually had the expectation we're going to see all these Formula One cars. You don't really see the cars because they're you know, covered in a huge box. But it's so yeah. cool just to get on board and you got like uh, Williams and you got Ferrari and you got McLaren and all these boxes. And you know, oh my God, this cargo you're transporting is worth millions of euros. So you better you know? fly well. <laughs> definitely, you have a good uh, soft landing. The coolest thing we've had in terms of I, I like a lot. I'm, uh, I'm a music guy, and uh, my parents kind of brought me up with the Beatles. And I had a really cool flight to going to Narita, Japan. And there was a guy. <laughs> so funny. There was a guy we had to pick up as a passenger. Sometimes we do have passengers. We have like eight um, sort of business class seats up in the in the upper deck of the seven four seven. And so this guy comes up and says, oh, I'm, I'm the passenger." And he was carrying a like a large suitcase. But a very long one and it said nothing on it, but he was really sort of grabbing onto it. And we didn't really question what it was, nevertheless. So we, um, we got on, get onto the plane and he didn't say what he was, what his job was. He didn't mention anything of like that. We got onto the plane and the entire cargo area was f- completely packed with stage equipment of Paul McCartney. Oh. And I, completely lost it i was just it was oh my god i mean i I really look up to this guy i mean he's a beetle right i mean picture that so and then yeah and that guy then he was up in the upper deck and he had this suitcase and i obviously at one point i kind of had to ask what he was carrying around (laughs) Mm -hmm. and it was paul's guitar you know and that just i mean oh he didn't open it but i was wanting to open have a string at it but it was just, you know and you see this is so cool and and i am you know this makes this job incredibly interesting because sometimes of course you just fly boxes from a to b and there's no secret about it but uh-huh. you know getting a chance to fly the beluga whales um hollywood equipment race cars porsches test vehicles i mean that the the list is absolutely endless what we carry around and 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 that kind of makes you Special as a pilot because yeah, you know you roll something from A to B, but it. Oh, hang on, is that room service? <laughs> I'm sorry. If I just... Oh, hang on, right, hang on. Oh, is it a fire drill? a crying out you can't be really serious. Oh, yeah, I think you just have to pause real quick. I'm sorry. No worries, Joe. Okay, that was uh, very spontaneous. There goes off the fire drill <laughs> <in> my hotel. <laughs> I've never had that in an interview before. Yeah, there you go. That's the first. Um, That's the first one. Yeah, one the thing is that it makes you, you know, sort of kind of makes you special as a pilot. It's you bring stuff from A to B, and you know, you kind of had a part in this whole, you know, logistics and the, in the whole role of accomplishing projects or you know bringing race cars to race tracks and that kind of thing i mean we've we've had the race horses on board and you have the grooms you know the groom who's actually looking out for the horse during the interview but i mean the stories these guys can tell are just incredible and and that's i think what i live for it's um it's the stories every package we fly from A to B has something to tell, and that is just to me very, you know, precious and important, and and it gives your job more of a a sense, you know, of what you're doing, and just yeah. being a little part of it all. I mean, the, the whole chain. So yeah, yeah, it's uh, I really like it. <laughs> Come on, is it ringing off again? Oh, for, oh, Mike, this is just such a disappointment. <laughs> I, I really, i really, I think they're just having a, I, I read some some information about having a fire drill. It's just gonna go off for half an hour now Okay, well, Mike. Then I think what we'll do is um, I will just call reception, uh, okay. ask them how long this procedure is going. for. I know it's just a test drill. Yeah. Um, but we just then call back, like sort of in, in twenty minutes. I know it's a bit disruptive now, but I think ah, it just went on and on and on. But they just they just cut it out. They said uh, it stops at fifth, uh at half past. So um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was just a test. And uh, I called in uh, guest services, and they said yeah, it's going on for half an hour or so.
0: But it's over now. It's all good. <laughs> Perfect, good, good. Okay, so Joe, can you talk us through the 747 cockpit? I mean, it looks very roomy, but uh, how does it feel uh, like piloting it? It's so funny that you say roomy because
1: it's not. (laughs) (laughs) It's so funny. If you look at the 747, she is... Huge. I mean, every time I step uh, in front of or get out of the bus, which takes us to, to the to the airplane, I am completely mesmerized by its size. But funny enough, when you go up the staircase and you come into the upper deck, the cockpit is really, really small. Um, I mean, once you're actually situated well, in your seat, uh, the overhead panel is very close to your head. And everything is sort of crammed into it, and it's funny because you would think uh, it's that huge of a massive plane, and why would be the why the, the so small? But uh, no, the, in general, the layout of uh, of the Boeing seven four seven is um, it is fairly similar to to what I've experienced on the Airbus. I mean, on the overhead panel, you have all the systems which aren't as you know much to use, obviously during flying. Um, you have your fuel panel, you have your fire extinguisher panel, you have all these panels which. Uh, yeah kind of sort of are less used during normal uh, regular flying um yeah. but in general yes you have a huge yoke in between your legs <laughs> that is probably the biggest difference and uh no but obviously a glass cockpit uh, all around and um uh what is what is well, uh, in general the layout is also very yeah it is Easy to understand. I mean, if you would uh, take a passenger and explain sort of where everything is, it does make sense where how they've laid it out. And uh, no, it's it's a uh, it's yeah it's a comfortable, snoozy little cockpit. <laughs> it's actually it's for, for my taste. It's maybe just an inch too small, but uh, no, you get used to it. It's fine.
0: <laughs> yeah. So obviously, there's the Boeing versus Airbus debate. Which do you yeah. prefer, the side control on Airbus or the yoke on the Boeing's?
1: Uh, yeah, in terms of that, um, okay. Um, I always like to refer uh, a plane. You know, use a pilot have to pl- have to fly a plane like a Cessna. Or it should feel like a little Cessna because that's what right. what you start off with, right? And. An Airbus AC20 or Airbus in general with the side stick can't really give you that feeling. First of all, you don't have the force feedback of the side stick, of what the plane is actually doing. Um, that in many ways, I'm not saying it's, it's uncomfortable or dangerous anyways. It's just, um, you know, in, in, if you're in full IFR, uh, you kind of need a bit of a feedback from your yoke uh, or from your input into the plane of what you're doing because that's what you also, besides relying on your instruments primarily, kind of also rely a little bit on the feel, um, maybe 5% in all, but still. Um, But the 747, it is, I personally think, and I said that before, you do feel a little more as a pilot having more control over the plane mm-hmm. because she is incredibly responsive, so you know it's it's funny if you, if you turn like the i don't know twenty five degree bank or something you you apply in the pressure and you kind of have to hold it at first and on the airbus you literally if you wanted a twenty five degree bank you put the side stick put the looked at the bank indicator you turned it to the left, and then you let go of the side stick and that was it. And then the plane just oh, wow. did, it just maintained that flight attitude until you apply some pressure into the other direction. But for the Boeing, if I tilt it to the left, it will initially do the turn. Mm-hmm. But it, if I go of the control, it will then roll out to get wings level again. And that is the key difference between the planes is that. Um, yeah, the, the Boeing is more of a Cessna, because if I apply pressure on a yoke on a Cessna, it will return back to its original flight path, and compared to the Airbus, it won't. And those are sort of the major differences. Um, yeah. if both of them are safe, but well, I'm not saying anything is better or worse, but it's, um, it's just you have a bit of more, you know, you're more in tune with your plane on the Boeing. That's, I think, is sort of the biggest difference between the Airbus, yeah.
0: So, <laughs> yeah. how long have you been on the 747 and what are your future plans? Do you intend to carry on for <laughs> the, the jet?
1: Yeah, well. I feel I haven't been on it too long enough. <laughs> I've only been on it <laughs> a year now. I mean, uh, it's been a, it'll be a year in March. Um, I mean, flying it actually. I started my first flight was in June, so I've only been actually a half a year on it. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, what is the, the the future of it? I mean, it's so funny when I started it, I, I heard all these rumors that they, you know, that Boeing is going to shut down the seven four seven project or a yeah. pro- program because there's no real need anymore for four engine jet aircraft because Mm -hmm. nowadays you can you know if you look at an a350 i mean the etops certification that got it can fly around the world with one engine it's just you know nowadays you don't need the four engine era has just come or it's slowly slowly coming to an end and um i mean there are discussions you know uh, the the key factor of the 747 why it is so so good especially in the cargo area is because of the nose cargo door mm-hmm. that is the key essence to the whole plane is that door because uh, in the future when it's going to be retired let's say 10 15 years yeah. i will be flying it for a couple of more years that's for sure <laughs> but somehow engineers have to come up with an idea to replace the nose cargo door because because then you won't be able to transport, I don't know, 50 meter long, 100 ton heavy drill, because you can't load it onto the plane anymore. Of course, you have the Antonovs, you have the Galaxy, but the Galaxy is also retiring at one point. She's so incredibly old. And, which is funny enough, the biggest competitor of Boeing um, many, many years back, but that's a whole other story. Um, but so they will have to come at the swing tail. I highly doubt that that will come back. I know... Um, uh, is it, hang on, Airbus Beluga is, no, it's not a swing tail, it's also a nose, nose cargo. Yeah, um, good, yeah. So, yeah, but, so that's not really an option either. Um. So I don't know. We'll see what the future brings. But I'm sure the next 10 years are secure that I'll definitely fly the 747 for the next,
0: that's for sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah lucky man. Mm-hmm. And, uh, maybe it'll be interesting to see if uh, the A380 is maybe turned into a cargo plane. I don't know if it's possible, but it certainly has a size.
1: Highly, highly doubted because the funny or the interesting fact about the 747 is, and I'm not sure if many of my listeners actually know that, it is it was built to be a cargo plane. That is the interesting fact. A lot of people think that it's actually a passenger plane, but that was not the whole idea. Okay, let's bring back to the story with the galaxy. Uh, Don't nail me down on dates, but when the whole project or the program of the 747 started because the US Air Force was looking for a cargo plane to transport um, these standardized uh, containers which you uh-huh. can which they have lorries which they have on sh- like shipping containers right yeah. so that was the measurement or the requirement the US Air Force laid out they said we want a plane which can fit this container so uh, a lot of airlines applied and Boeing bought came up with the 747 program, and that's the reason why the cockpit is above on the upper deck so you could fit a nose cargo door in the first place and that you could fit that container. Um, At the same time, uh, Lockheed was doing... Uh, was a rival, or also um, presenting a, a program, which is the Galaxy, and uh, the U.S. Air Force went with the Galaxy, and then the 747 of Boeing was left over with their project, and no one was interested in it anymore. Then Juan Tripp, the guy from the CEO from Pan Am at the time, he, they, kind of, well, Boeing sort of had a very close relationship with him because they, had, he had bought countless planes in, uh, beforehand, and he said, well, why not put an upper deck, uh, put the first class into the upper deck because, uh, Joe Sutter, the guy who's actually the, you know, the godfather of uh, the 747, he actually had intended to have the upper deck as a, um, as a crew rest <laughs> and Juan Tripp said, Oh, no, 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 not having that. No, no, no. We're definitely <laughs> going to have an upper class. You know, it's like you above the economy class, more or less. Uh, and that was the key selling point. And that just, that literally saved the 747 project in the whole, because of Juan Tripp's idea. And then, you know, they've been selling it for uh, selling it off to Lufthansa and all these other companies. And and it was a, it, it was, yeah, it was great. And then I think then a couple of years back, They then came back to the original program and then uh, said, okay, we're also going to introduce a cargo plane. And that's how it all, I mean, uh, reverted back to the old plans and put the nose cargo in place. And uh, so it it has, you know, multiple options to use it. So it's great for passenger, and it's great for cargo. And um, that, I personally think, makes it so incredibly unique. And um, I'm so thankful that I could fly it. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah, (laughs) Apart from the Concorde, I would say it's probably the best looking airliner out there.
1: (laughs) Sure is. I mean, it's just different, you know. I mean, nowadays, not to... Sound like degrading to any airplanes out there. It's it's a long pipe with wings and a and a stabilizer at the back, and you know no they don't have real shape anymore. I think okay the A350 does look very stylish too, and the 787 they're all getting you know more aerodynamic and whatnot, but none of them have none of them has this unique hump i mean you'll recognize the 747 miles away you can see her coming if she's flying aside alongside of you you will immediately recognize it's a 747 because of the hump and that to me makes her so special
0: and before we move on to chat about obviously youtube what what mark of yeah. um, the 747 do you fly in what's the difference is it just engines or is it avionics as well <laughs>
1: Oh yeah there's a, there's a few differences we have um we have a few ERFs sort of the extended range freighters uh, which have different engines a lot of them have the the old Pratt and Whitney's my god they sound Amazing! They have the coolest <laughs> sound, really. I mean, once you flip that switch, this engine just sort of, you know, that, there's a roar to it. It's just really cool. Um, we have the 400s, the standard 400s. Most of them come with the, the Rolls-Royce engines. And we have the, uh, the Dash 8, obviously, which is the more modern one, uh, which comes with the Gen X engines, um, the General Electrics. Um, they're all more or less the same. Uh, the Dash 8 is a little bit more powerful. Funny enough, it is when you're in the cockpit and take off, you can barely hear the engines because they're sort of quiet, but you can feel the little bit of, you know, the extra part of thrust it has. But um in terms of cockpit layout, it is it's exactly the same. Um for the biggest difference on the Dash 8 is uh, obviously the electronic checklist. So everything is electronically. You don't use the quick reference handbook anymore as much, or you don't have a paper checklist anymore. And it, in terms of flying-wise, the Dash 8 is a little more unstable than the 400. The 400 really gives you that, wow, this is a heavy as aircraft and you can really feel it. you get a presence of this it, it tells you kind of yeah. you know um, i'm a heavy plane and you can really feel it on the yo the thing is on the dash a there's a few things like the descent rate is um it needs more like you have to start the descent with the dash Eight a little earlier than you have, would have had to do with the 400 because she, she's more of a glider right, a right. <laughs> no i mean she's still but the wing is just more sensitive and um it's with a little sort of sweat back and, and those, um, uh, what's it called, the, the winglets, which are sort of, you know, integrated into the wing itself. It does, and it is a little more sort of unstable on the last sort of 100, 200 feet on when you come in for landing. But that, I mean, um, that's what the book says. It says I have really felt it as much. I remember on descent planning that you use the speed brakes more often to really, you know, create excessive drag to actually get her down then you would rather do the 400. I don't use the the speed brakes as much on the 400s as i able to use on the dash 8. But that's just how it is. But but you know on the other hand on the other hand uh, the dash 8 has much more sort of really cool features, you know, showing you if you're too high on your descent profile or if you're low. Obviously the 400 does that as well, but the dash 8 has a few more features which sort of really help you to, you know, get back on profile. But besides that they are more or less the same. More or less.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and before we move on, have you seen the recent news that uh, British Airways are going to do an old BOAC livery on their 747?
1: Well, they better do. That's amazing. It <laughs> looks absolutely that. that's, that's incredible. Cool. That's cool. I must, I must say, I, uh, the, delivery of the, of British Airways itself. Uh, I've always been very fond of it. The one which I really thought was incredibly cool. Um, besides all these special ones, they had one which was for the Olympics was an oh, A- oh, eight, yes. it's an 8020. I thought, and they had golden feathers and everything. It looked, yeah. it was sort of it was it was so unique and different to all others and i thought that was cool sort of you know to show that we have the olympics and being proud to be british and that kind of thing but um <laughs> no it was it was really nice and uh yeah there's there's good liveries out there and um, british show is is one of them i kind of like yeah <laughs> and it's cool if they bring out all the, the, the BOAC I mean how cool is that yeah
0: that will uh, be pretty yeah. special that
1: yeah. will yeah that will be special for all the spotters I can probably see that <laughs>
0: oh yeah there's plenty of them out there isn't there but absolutely. Uh, yeah we're certainly wishing you all the best uh, for your future career on the 747 Thank you, but, thank um, you thank you yeah, yeah we need to talk about YouTube because your channel <laughs> is just absolutely incredible you know you've got yeah, so many subscribers you. so tell us how you started this
1: uh, I get the story, that question so often and it's I know so sorry funny. to repeat it no 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 it's so good it's so funny a lot of people think that I just started off because I had the idea no it's it happened actually as a lot of things do in life happened by a funny coincidence right um it was that my dad I, I was flying with Air Berlin, and I had you know great times all good but I had a lot of spare time on my hands and I wanted to do something with it and I'm not that type of guy who just you know I can't binge watch Netflix it just be crazy so yeah, I had to do definitely. something with time and um, I did a couple of things I was a, a personal a trainer for two years I did this and that and all sorts of things but it never really sort of stuck to me and I, yeah so in the end I was at uh, a flight performing in Munich uh, with Evelyn and my dad Called me up and he was reading a newspaper article, sort of, a, it was a bit of a refresher of the, um, of that incident of uh, the Air France accident from, uh, Brazil to Paris. And it was all about the Pito tube. And he didn't really understand that article because it was very, very technical, although my dad yeah. has a really hard technical knowledge. Nevertheless, he, um, I had two hours of turnaround and, I, I, I told him or I offered him why not, uh, I'll FaceTime with you and I'll show you around it, you know, I'll explain the whole thing. And so that's what I did. I took him out on an outside check. We went through all the things, systems and I went up into the cockpit and just we went on and on and on. It was really cool. A couple of, I want to say a month later or so, I was at my parents' place, Dad and I sitting on the terrace, having a beer, having a blast. And he goes and says, Hey, Joe, have you actually considered, you know, your passengers? They could be really interested in. That kind of FaceTime call we've had, or you know, explaining stuff. Don't you think that could be like a YouTube thing? And my dad, I mean, at the time, he was like eight, sixty-eight years old. I don't wow. even think knew what YouTube was.
0: <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> and, uh,
1: yeah, and then uh, then I said, oh, it sounds like a lot of work, you know, oh, yeah, I'll consider it. So, in the first place, we started off with Instagram to see if there is really, you know, people are interested in that. So, we uploaded a couple of pictures. It skyrocketed. It just went off, like off the hook. It was really cool. And then I said, okay, I think a year later, a half a year later, I uploaded my first YouTube video. And... I was, you cannot believe how nervous I was. I mean, you know, I hadn't had any permissions yet from company. No one knew about it i talked to my friends a little bit about about the whole idea and so far and you just you know if it's you sort of bring up something new you will always feel com- uncomfortable at first and then you know you get the hang of it and then you get you get better and better i mean it's probably the same with your with your podcast you know I mean, people probably at the beginning thought oh god what's mike up to now and then you want <laughs> yeah. to you know you get experience, you get better and better and so far you get there yeah. um so i uh uploaded i think is one of the first the first video was about the sterile cockpit, I think it was. And then it sort of continued, and then it was sort of gradually picking up. And then uh, I uploaded a video about reverse thrust. Apparently, that was a topic everyone wanted to know about because that video broke any record I've had so far. And I think it has by now something, 1.5 million views or something. And that took a huge part in the success of this Captain Joe YouTube channel because, yeah. you know, then it sort of picked up, and then I got countless comments up uh, uh below that video uh saying joe can you do that video can you explain this can you do this and that and i literally wrote a list of all the things that people wanted to know and from that point on uh, it, it it was a success story and 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 it's just it's so much fun i really like doing it and it, it I bet it does consume a lot of time but the rewards the feedback you get from you know i to, to me personally, it's not the financial aspect. I mean, that's not really to count for. But the, what I really see as success is when I get pictures sent from flight students that their instructor has shown my video in their flight school. I mean, That's awesome. they, this is absolutely, then you know, you have done something right because the instructor, I have had a feedback talk with one of the instructors and he said, Joe, I'm sorry, you have just explained it much more better with visuals and whatnot. And, you know, I could just pop that video on at the end of my session or lesson or whatever. And, um, and it's just great, you know, and then I, and from that point on, I knew I was on the right track and it just kept kept going and then it's just, it's yeah, I really like doing it and I still like doing
0: it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean it's uh, one of my favorite channels, it's absolutely brilliant Thanks. but um, yeah, let's talk about how you come up with your ideas because it seems like yeah. you pick a certain topic and that's what you focus on and uh, yeah. yeah, do you have a list or like of what you want to record or is it like spur of the moment, how do you, how do you come up with these ideas? No,
1: no, it's, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely uh, a lot of the stuff is um, based on the comments I get or questions which are sent in, because sometimes I don't see that even as a question, and then I thought, yeah. okay, that's actually really a good topic to talk about. And also, sometimes I'm in the cockpit, and maybe there is something which I, well, let's say, struggle with, or uh, also have, you know, difficulties understanding. For example, just recently, there was um, when I did my first oceanic crossing. That is quite a thing to do. You I mean you have to get the oceanic clearance and everything? Yes but there's a, like a book to read just about oceanic clearances or the oceanic crossing. And I thought, okay, why not, you know, make a video more or less for myself to get a better understanding of what it is. And that's more, and then obviously that helps. I know others to, to and they watch that video. Uh, funny enough, I haven't, I haven't even done it yet, but it is, I've done the script for it it's all ready to go. But, um, you know, it's sort of things, if I want If I think if I struggle with a few things, then I assume a lot of others will do the same. Not that I'm universal to everything, but I'm saying is that, you know, if you probably ask 100 people... the same question probably 80% of them will say I'm struggling with that same problem you know and then you kind of sort of have a direction okay this could potentially be an interesting video and sometimes I mean I have videos which fail some of them didn't no one had no interest at all sometimes it's just luck sometimes it's bad luck and you know you just have to learn from your experiences and
0: uh, yeah but I I I think what I love about your channel is you're trying to educate but it's also entertaining which is a difficult uh, combination to do absolutely because at one point you try, you have to be serious because you need to be seen and respected as a pilot
1: you can't be you know joking around about things and the same point is if i do something wrong if i explain something completely the opposite or make a mistake trust me <laughs> Aviators or pilots in general, they will I will, they will they hold me down if I make something wrong. So I, can't, I really have to be precise on what I say. And it's sometimes I have colleagues checking on my scripts. They say, OK, Joe, you might want to change this a little bit, go, you know, say this and that, just to be sure that I'm not messing up. And, um, you know, just double check everything. I mean, I have made mistakes in the past and I had to delete a couple of videos because I realized I did a mistake. Okay, it was one time, <laughs> but still, it's 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 a thing that it's a learning curve, and uh, and I, good lord, when I mean, if I look at my videos, which are two years old, oh my god, I feel so ashamed to look at them because the the audio is horrible, the <laughs> the video is all oh my word, and you know it's it's as again, it's a learning curve, and you get better and better at things, and um, yeah, and the people I have met, and funny enough, I have to mention this because this is really. I have you have no idea how thankful I actually are that we have met because um, like, what I was doing, <laughs> what I was doing a couple of years well it's a year year ago roughly now um, was I wanted to do a series about Concorde and um, I was googling you know checking on YouTube if anyone had else done it and then I found your video you interviewing one of probably the most iconic Concorde pilots John Hutchinson and then we got in contact he, uh, he had your email address there I wrote you up and then you gave me his contact. And I couldn't even believe it when I wrote him. I said, oh, yeah, I remember the interview with Mike. Yeah, you can come around, you know, uh, whenever you want. I said, are you joking? I thought I'm, he's going to reply like in a year or so, but he replied the next day. Yeah. And I was in England at the time. And then I thought, okay, I just might as well go by. And, um, I mean, that to me was one of the most uh, inspiring persons I've, yeah, or pilots I've met so far. This guy he's is a great just, blog, so, I mean, he? Stories that guy could tell. I mean, you could you could write ten books just about what he was experienced with Concord. Or Mira you know, it's it's incredible. It was really cool. so again, Mike. Thank you very much for getting in, or putting me in touch with with John. That was definitely oh, a huge thing. My pleasure. Yeah, <laughs> uh, let,
0: let's talk because obviously I'm on YouTube as well. Do, do you get any yeah. bad comments or hateful comments, and how do you deal I, with
1: that? I mean, there's always someone who's going to be mock about or something. It's it's not you can't. You know if you have a, a child of that size it'll always be zero point zero two percent of guys who are gonna you know complain about something it's just to be honest I remember at first uh, they really caught up on me and I you know it's the funny thing so you get two thousand positive comments about Joe you just all what really cool incredibly helpful blah 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 and you get that one comment uh Joe you know you've full of shit or whatever um, some hateful stuff and mm. that somehow sticks to your mind right that is where you can't even go to sleep with it's ridiculous I don't know even why because you see it in comparison it's it's a joke one well, comment compared to 2000 but you learn you just I mean, I've got countless friends to talk about it and there's a oh, joke come on like you know see the comparison to the positive comments see the upside see how many people you're helping it's you know then at one point you just get used to it I mean it ha- i must admit it has been very very low on my channel it's just a few things i i can sort of vividly remember but i you know it's also the internet is a place where people can hide you know if that guy can come up to me and personally say to myself then it is criticism i will take yeah. but if it's a guy hiding on his laptop and just writing a nasty comment because he is bored probably <laughs> okay, that to me is it's, it's it's a waste of time, and you know I might as well. You could have a
0: waste just, of energy. Yeah.
1: Yeah, waste of energy. Yeah. So, <laughs> but if yeah. people, I've, I, mean, actually, people approaching me personally saying, "Hey, Joe, criticism here, mate," but but then also that was incredibly helpful critique. They said, "Hey, Joe, why don't you do this thing?" And I, that, I was thankful for it. I was really thankful because that improved the channel in many many ways. And, you know, it's just you learn from your mistakes and from the yeah. criticism you
0: get. I think constructive criticism is uh, really helpful, but just negative comments don't really help you uh, at all. And um, uh, as you probably do now, I just ignore them as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so what can we expect from your channel uh in the future? Do you have any big plans uh, coming up for it? Cuz you're oh, yeah. uh, I think yeah. you're a couple <laughs> 100,000 away from a million now subscribers. A million, yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's there's a huge thing uh which I am planning on. It is it is very difficult to to actually go for it and do it. And um, the thing is that um I personally don't really like the word uh, or if people call me an influencer, because personally, I think I haven't really influenced people. Yeah. I haven't really changed their lives. I've helped them maybe in terms of you know, aviation stuff, but I haven't really helped uh, like change someone's life, for example, to become a pilot. So I am what I'm trying to set up, but it involves a lot of talk with lawyers and everything, it's quite difficult, and especially how we're going to do it, is I want to help Young aviation enthusiasts or flight students to pay off their flight school bills oh, wow. because flight school is incredibly expensive and there's nothing about that. And I've spoken to countless flight schools and um, and there is one flight school which is very fond of my idea that I would that is now still in the process of going putting a huge crowdfunding. Setting up a crowdfunding on YouTube channel uh, and getting my followers to, you know, donate money to help younger students. That's the whole idea. I haven't, it's, it's, we're working on it. It's a bit difficult to actually put it into place, but, um, that is one of the things I want to do because I know I have a big audience, uh, but now what am I going to do with it? And to make a real impact, to in life and for me personally that's one of those bucket list items is to help someone like really change someone's life that is what i think is now ha- or or slowly becoming the purpose of my channel um to or use use the amount of followers to to help others and that's uh, i'm hoping to fulfill that um probably sort of in may june this year that's that's the goal yeah
0: <laughs> well that sounds <laughs> yeah. like an absolutely uh cracking idea joe and uh yeah think, like your channel being I-, I would say probably one of the biggest aviation channels on um youtube that you're using it for a you know a positive kind of uh, output so, yeah. rather than just trying to make money or become famous or whatever i think it's, yeah. it's absolutely brilliant
1: absolutely yeah it's i mean um you know the uh, it's, it's, there's a few things which I am really, really happy about and thankful that I've um, you know, started that channel in the first place. It was never the idea, obviously, to become famous or whatever, because I never thought it was going to pick up that much. And But now, you know, you getting me in contact with John Hutchison with the Concord Pie, then uh, I've spoken to Kennedy Steve, that the yes, it's one yes, of the most iconic ATC controllers out there. And there's so many people I have met along this journey and that to me is, you know, they, this is incredible because I've never expected this to be, to happen like this. And so that to me is now also a message of I have to give back to, to my viewers and this is, uh, I hope this is going to be one of the chances of doing so and it's also, there's countless other projects which are on the sideline right now which are, <laughs> which are coming sort of slowly into place and uh, it's going to be an incredibly exciting year, so, yeah, I know that for sure, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll be certainly uh, following your channel and also yeah. Instagram but um, yeah, so where can we actually find you online uh, for our viewers that may not have heard of you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, I think the, the biggest one where you can see most of my work is the YouTube channel. If you type into the search box up in YouTube, if you just go Captain Joe, uh, you'll immediately find me. And the same goes for Instagram. Uh, we have uh, fly with Captain Joe. You'll find me there. And, uh, but now where I think a lot of stuff, especially this podcast is going to be on my uh, website. I'm going to upload it there as well. So that I have a website also it's www.flywithcaptainjoe.com and there's a bunch of cool information on there um we have also like tons of giveaways the giveaway thing is like really picking up now that's a lot of fun giving things back and uh, like i've given it with my headset and sunglasses and watches and all that kind of stuff and it's really cool and um so there's a lot of information on there but those are like the key three platforms it's youtube instagram and my website yeah
0: Awesome, job! Well, I'm yep. going to ask you a few personal questions now uh, to yep. wrap up, if you're happy with that. So, um, <laughs> yeah, apart, sure, from, yep. apart from flying, uh, do you have any hobbies? <laughs> uh, editing movies?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I sorry, I do a lot of sports. I have a really close uh, group of mates uh, back in Munich where I do a lot of sports. And I have a girlfriend who... Needs a lot of attention as well. So uh, yeah, those all my hobbies. Yeah, and oh, okay. To really wrap it up, um, I have a huge interest for vintage cars. I like restoring old cars.
0: That's what I do a lot with my dad. And yeah, that's. I think those are the biggest hobbies of my life. now yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yep. So, do you? Ha- what's your favorite military and also civil aviation aircraft?
1: Okay, the most favorite military. Uh... Tough one. I would have gone with the Tomcat but I Tomcat. go actually with the Tornado because I've actually flown the Sim once and that is a cool plane uh, yes. it's very versatile, you can use it in all sorts of areas, um, so military wise that's the yeah the Tornado uh, and co- commercial Ooh, I think I'm going to go on a limb here and uh, I think I've got to say the DC-3 oh,
0: ok, <laughs> I wasn't expecting that
1: no, because I think the D C three is it I mean it has an incredible history. I'm funny enough, I'm getting to allow to i I'm flying it in April. <laughs> it's a long story. But uh <laughs> no, it's um it's just uh it's a cool looking plane, it's hands on flying. Uh, I think there's not a single one out of them with an autopilot, if I'm not mistaken. No, it's it's a good looking plane and it has done what it, it was built for. And, uh, you know, you can obviously I could have said an Airbus 8020, but that, that's like a, just a normal plane. You need a cool plane.
0: Yeah, I <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I'm I correct in thinking that's going to be with, uh, I think that there's a series called Ice Pilots. Is it, is it
1: Absolutely. Yes, yeah, yeah. they came up to me, actually, and uh, invited me to come up there. And uh, so, yes, we're at the moment in planning and um, doing a week of uh, flying around Yellowknife. Yeah, that's the idea.
0: <laughs> awesome, yep. Joe. And last question. Uh, it's probably going to be a difficult one and you might not be uh, able to answer, but Airbus <laughs> or Boeing?
1: Oh, don't mind. Don't. Ask me. <laughs> I have to do it.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no. Uh, I could have just answered Embryo. <laughs>
1: no, no. Um, uh, gee. Oh, all right, it's going to hurt. Um, hey, oh. Uh, uh, no, Boeing.
0: It's Boeing. It's Boeing. You
1: yes, You're going Boeing. You're oh, going Boeing. in the face. No, it's Boeing. Yes,
0: yes, Boeing. Awesome, Joe. <laughs> well, I appreciate you being on the show, and it's been absolutely brilliant to listen to your story. You know how you started in aviation up to your your current YouTube career as well. So uh, I just want to say a big thank you to you to for coming on the show.
1: Thank you. Absolutely. I mean, funny enough, you've actually picked my cherry today because this is my first podcast interview I've ever uh, given, so it's really cool. I'm thankful that it's with you, and um, I again really appreciate uh, what you've done for me in the past. And uh, I uh, hope the listeners enjoyed our talk. Well, I don't know how long we've been going on for, but no, it's <laughs> uh what, what you're doing is really it's so incredible for the community, especially the aviation community. And I'm hoping that this is just listen to a couple of people who are like on long commutes pilots are a lot on long commutes and listen to an hour of me and you talking to each other and um yeah that's what this podcasting is all about and i really appreciate your work so thank you much for having me on